there were these uh, two songs in particular that were huge hits uh, that I want to uh, talk about for a quick sec. The first one was written by Sir Paul McCartney and is a song called Yesterday. And the second song uh, became a huge hit much, much later, written by Canadian singer-songwriter Leonard Cohen called Hallelujah. Now, both of these songs were massive, and uh, they came about in two very, very different ways. So in an interview um, that, uh, that uh, Paul McCartney had uh, concerning writing the song, here's what he said. He, he said that uh, he wrote the song in a matter of minutes. He says, I have no idea how I wrote that. I just woke up one morning and it was in my head. I couldn't believe it. Okay, that's what he said. A matter of minutes. I woke up one morning, it was in my head. He writes it down yesterday. Boom. Massive smash hit. Canadian singer-songwriter Leonard Cohen. Not a matter of minutes to write Hallelujah. That song that you know, uh, uh, which sadly became famous through an animated movie, Shrek, and not from his release, it took him two years. <laughs> it took him two years to write it, and there was reportedly, uh, depending on uh, the, the folks that you kind of talked to about his process, over 80 verses. There were over 80 verses and renditions. Every time Leonard Cohen would... Per- perform it live. He was tweaking it and changing it and constantly changing it. And so can you imagine if those two guys met in a coffee shop in 1984 to talk about the songwriting process? I wrote it in a matter of minutes. I couldn't believe it. I woke up and there it was. And what? Two years for me. Two years of painstaking work. We've been in a series studying the wisdom of scripture and we all wish so much that the wisdom of God came to us the way Paul McCartney wrote yesterday. We wish we could pray at night, oh God, I've got this thing I've got to deal with this week, I've got these challenges, you know, relationally or with the family or in our marriage or with, with you know, my colleagues at work. Give me wisdom. And then we just wake up in the morning and we go, oh, I, don't, I can't believe how it came to me. We wish that was how wisdom worked. We, we don't want it to be like the process that Leonard Cohen went through, which is long and painstaking and constantly revisiting and re, uh, revamping. But what we find as we work through the wisdom literature in the scriptures is that it is very much a process. And our text for today is uh, Proverbs chapter 4. I'm going to read a few excerpts from this chapter, verses 5 to 9, 18, and then 23 to 25. Let's look at our text for this morning. Get wisdom, get insight. Do not forget and do not turn away from the words of my mouth. Do not forsake her and she will keep you. Love her and she will guide you. The beginning of wisdom is this. Get wisdom and whatever you get, get insight. Prize her highly and she will exalt you. She will honor you if you embrace her. She will place on your head a graceful garland. She will bestow on you a beautiful crown. Do not enter the path of the wicked and do not walk in the way of evil. The path of the righteous is like the light of dawn, which shines brighter and brighter until the full day. The way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. Keep your heart with all diligence, for from it spring the issues of life. Put away from you crooked speech and put away devious talk far from you. Let your eyes look directly forward and your gaze be straight before you. Ponder the path of your feet, and then all your ways will be sure. This is God's word. Now the wisdom of God is the ability to respond to life and hardships with insight, with foresight and character. Insight to be able to not 
just broad brush what we're facing, but to look carefully at the nuances of what we're dealing with. Insight, foresight to be able to think about where our choices are leading us. Character as in responding in a way that resembles and imitates the character of our, of our God of, of love and of grace in, in a way that God would call right and just and true. Now, as the children of God's grace, we look back on this text on this side of the cross as those who have been saved by his undeserved, unmerited, scandalous grace. And what we, what we must realize is the same grace that has saved us, it does this renewing work in us and it ushers us into faith and it empowers us to walk out our faith. So as we look at this text, we want to consider how it is God's word is able to continually complete what he began. Um, we're going to look at three things because, of course, there's tons of meditating to be done and you could spend all week thinking deeply about this. But for the purpose of this morning, we want to look at three things from this text. That wisdom requires passionate pursuit, that wisdom flows from a guarded heart, and that wisdom is a living word. So the passionate pursuit, guarded heart, and the living word. So first, let's look at this passionate pursuit. In the, in the verses 5 through 9, wisdom is portrayed as something that requires this passionate pursuit. And it tells us in verse 9, there's a massive reward. And when you look at the language, you find that it's very strong. It's suggesting that there is determination and, 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 and straining and an exertion of the will and uh, sacrifice. And it's really the, it's compelling us to see, using that imagery of wisdom being a woman, um, this wise and powerful uh, woman who's worth pursuing at whatever the cost. This is the image that we're, that we're given here. And um, it says, you know, that it's, it's costly. And when you think about it, you and I don't spend any time or money or effort on anything that's costly if we don't value the cost. A couple days ago, somebody knocks on my door and this young woman says to me, I'll clean your eaves trust for you. I'll give you a quote. I said, okay. She gives me a quote. She comes back. She says, it's going to be $500. And so I said, well, thank you. I appreciate it. But I, that's not a priority for me right now. And that was a, a, a problem for her because she was trying to convey value. And, I'm, and I said to her, I said, no, I'm not. Uh, she said, well, it's really good value. And I said, well, I'm not debating that it isn't good value. It might be excellent value. It's just it's not a priority for me. So the challenge that she had was how do I explain to this fool that this is actually a value? Because at the end of the day, it's just not something that I value. And so, and so we never spend our time, money, energy, effort on anything that we don't value. So Proverbs is compelling us to see the goodness of God walking in his ways is something that is of true value. When you get to verse 18, there's these two paths that are contrasted. You've got, um, and they give us a little bit of a window into why wisdom is such a struggle for us and why we stumble. Because in these two paths, you've got the path of the righteous, which is like the dawn. It's getting brighter and brighter and brighter, and it's getting more and more clear, and, it, and it's shining brighter until the noonday. Then you've got the path of the wicked, which is darkness, and they're tripping all over the place. And as we consider this, you know, first it might be helpful to ask ourselves the question, well, if I'm righteous and if I walk in the wisdom of God, does that mean I won't stumble because the wicked are stumbling? Well, spoiler alert, you read all of Proverbs, you get to chapter 27, and it says that the righteous may fall and stumble seven times, but they rise every time. So we're not immune from stumbling, but because our path is lit, because we're walking in God's wisdom, because we're learning to love his ways, we can actually see what's making us stumble. Whereas the, the wicked are walking in this darkness, stumbling all over, uh, 
and having uh, their lives complicated by the devastation of sin manifesting in various ways. Of course, they don't see it as something that's, they don't even see it as stumbling. They, they are walking in this darkness. And so we're given this imagery of these two paths and well, why they cause us to stumble. You know, I have this um, so piece of sidewalk outside of the house on the court here. And for years, it was uneven. A root from a tree had pushed it up. And you would walk by and kick that thing, break your toes, trip. If you were looking at your phone, you were gonna, you were gonna go flying. And eventually the city came by and they spray painted the edge of the sidewalk with this fluorescent orange paint. And so it was shining brighter and brighter ever unto the noonday. So you could see it. Okay, that's what made me stumble last week. How about I not step on that again? So why does Proverbs get, why does it give us this imagery of these two paths? And why, um, why is it the pursuit of wisdom so difficult? Why does it require such energy? Why is it so costly? If we're saved by God's grace, apart from our work, then why is obtaining God's wisdom such work? Well, wisdom is costly because living according to what God says is right is going to cost us the comfort of living according to what we say is right. Shifting from what is most natural to us to choosing what is right before God is hard. That shift is costly. It requires this process, this ongoing process of renewal, this ongoing work of the Spirit. You know, um, <clears throat> up on Iron Needles Boulevard, there's this small par three golf course, and every hole is around 85 or you know 75 to 85 yards. And so, on occasion, we go there with Nigel, and I just bring one club. I'm like, this is the one club I need. I can hit a pitching wedge, you know, maybe it'll land on the green, maybe it'll be shorter of the green, maybe it'll, I'll airmail the green, but I can pretty much get around this whole course with one club. And uh, when we consider the way that God has wired us, our personality traits, our natural bent, um, wisdom is not going through life with one club. Wisdom is not expecting that the, our particular way of handling relationships and situations and our temperaments uh, is, going, is going to day-to-day -day serve in all contexts. It is not wisdom to expect that the world is somehow you know, oriented to serve our particular temperaments and traits and contexts. We've got this combination of our natural instincts and life experiences that have led you and I to really favor certain clubs, to really favor certain processes, favor certain responses, favor certain actions, ways of dealing with conflict. And you know, our, the way that we are wired um, in some contexts is helpful and in other contexts is not helpful. And so this is why we need this wisdom of God. This is why it's costly and it's difficult because we have to shift from what we find most comfortable to what God says is wise. For example, if you're a person that is non-confrontational, and your natural inclination is to kind of be silent and um, reserved in your speech or maybe not say anything. There's a lot of context where that's going to be wise and it's going to be really helpful. But let's say that you are at work or uh, you know on campus and you're encountering something that is unethical or there's discrimination involved um, or, or there's uh, conversations going on that are kind of perpetuating rac racial uh, stereotypes or gossip and somebody's reputation is being destroyed. All of a sudden, your natural inclination to be a non-confrontational, sort of peaceful, silent person, in that context, all of a sudden it's not helpful. All of a sudden saying nothing is unhelpful and is unwise. Let's say you're a person who's very bold 
and you're okay with confrontation and you have a bias to action and you're very decisive, there's a lot of contexts where that is helpful, useful, wise. But if you're sitting down with somebody who is mourning, grieving, confused, facing difficult life decisions, for you to shift very quickly into advice giving and fixing and monologuing rather than listening and caring, all of a sudden something that's helpful in one context is not going to be helpful in another. All of a sudden our natural bent, that one club that we go through life with that's perhaps going to have a very wise application over here isn't going to have one over here. And this is why uh, the pursuit of wisdom is costly because it's, it requires from us this humility, this ability to um, not just go through life one way, but to say, oh God, would you do renewal in me so that I go through life and deal with things in an appropriate way? If you look back at verse seven, whatever you do, get insight. That insight is that nuance. That insight is the ability to not just say, this is who I am and this is how I am and so deal with it. This is how God made me. And so everybody in my life, my family, my children, you all just have to deal with me because this is my personality and I'm just being really honest. Hey, relating to life that way does not make you a candidate for an authenticity Oscar. That just, that just makes you myopic and difficult to deal with. So wisdom is, oh God, help me not to just relate to everything one way, but would you do reform and renewal in my heart so that I can handle things in the appropriate way? And so as you can see, because that's so difficult, none of us have wisdom the way that the song yesterday came to Paul McCartney. We don't just wake up in the morning with this thing, with this thing have come to us. It's this long process. We need God's word and we need God's grace. We need his ongoing renewal because our families and our colleagues and our schools and the world is not fitted to our temperament. We cannot go through life with one club. And so as we live in communion with God and as we are guided by the word of God and as we're sharpened by this community, this church community, you know, here with the people of God, that is how we learn to stop defaulting into responses because they're comfortable and then we begin to consider responses because they're wise and this is why we need the church community so we can sharpen one another none of us can become wise in isolation none of us become wise sitting on our decks by ourselves reading the bible that's not how you become wise that can nourish your soul that can do beautiful things in you that can minister the peace of god to your heart it can uh, recalibrate you with peace but none of us become wise by ourselves. We need the community to sharpen us in ways so that we can learn to be able to relate to one another with love and with grace and to our city with love and with grace. When you look at verse 18, it talks about the righteous, the righteous path and the righteous, um, <clears throat> you know, walking on this path. And this righteousness, of course, is to live in congruence with what God considers to be true and just and loving and good and right. Well, Jesus was righteous by nature. You and I are declared righteous by grace. And this is why the pursuit of wisdom requires humility because none of us can get to confession in that point of the liturgy and say, oh, I don't need to confess this morning. I can take a week off confession. All of us need the confession because we're declared righteous by grace. But Jesus is the only one who's righteous by nature. And so united to Christ, he is your righteousness. United to Jesus, you can look at verse 18 and say, because of Christ, I, I want to walk in this way where my, the way I relate to my family, to my colleagues, to my, the decisions I have this fall with work or school, I want to relate to these things with wisdom. 
So, oh God, would you light my path so that I can make decisions that are appropriate and wise? And so wisdom requires passionate pursuit. But moving on to the second thing, wisdom flows from a guarded heart. And so when you look at verse 23, notice the instruction as it relates to the heart. Guard it. Consider modern conversations about the heart. Follow it. The modern sensibility is follow your heart. The biblical instruction is guard your heart. Let's consider this for a minute. The modern construct of the heart, you listen to how we talk about it. It's that follow it because it can't be wrong if you want it because you're the king. But the biblical instruction is no guard your heart because there is a divine king and I'm not the king. And so therefore I want the wisdom of the king to reorient my heart, even the desires that I have that may be contradictory to his instruction because there is of course a king and he's not me. And look at the language that's used here. It's a military term. It's super strong. Guard it, keep it with vigilance. This sense of, of making, being watchful of what goes in and out. Um, it's got, you know, it, the instruction is, you know, guard what has a formative effect on us because the real problem is not outside us. The problem is inside us. How do you square that? Think of the words of Jesus so we can understand this because the temptation would be to say, okay, well, we're good people and the church is full of good people and the bad people are out there, so stay away from the bad people and then you'll be a good person. And that is a, a naive sort of religious way of understanding righteousness. It's just simply not true. The problem is not out there. The problem is actually in here. Jesus said it's not what goes into a man that defiles him, but it's what comes out. In other words, if you square Jesus' words with this teaching, we realize all of us have a pre-existing condition. We all have a pre-existing condition called sin. And so we need to guard the formative things that come in here so that they don't inflame that condition, so they don't inflame what's already in here. Uh, for example, I've got um, two adult t uh, children and one teenager. When the kids were really little, we were conscious of the formative effects of messaging in terms of media. And we didn't, you know, burn the television and say there will be no media in our home. We were like, we were constantly stopping and pausing and doing parental walkthroughs. And hey, did you catch that? Did you see that? Do you know why they said that? And when they were really little, we did a lot of that because we were, we were wanting to say, how do we not isolate our children from the world, but insulate them so they can go out into the world and, and, and enjoy, um, you know, God's good creation and all manner of good things, but have a sense of understanding of the messaging coming toward them. So we were constantly, when they were very little, you know, pausing things. And they, then they would all get to the, the uh, different ages as they were growing where they're like, we, okay, dad, we can, let it play. We understand, you know, I'd pause the TV and I'd turn and be like, did you got it? And they're like, we got it. We're on it. We, under, we recognize what's going on. Let us enjoy this thing. And so this process of not just allowing uh, all manner of conversation to come and inform our hearts, but to do that. And then, of course, as your children grow, those of you who have grown children, you've already been through this. As they grow uh, and as they're grown, they then have to exercise wisdom and discernment for themselves. But... This is why the text gives us this military term of guard the heart. Be aware that everyone is a preacher. And so as you're working through the wisdom literature, we discover through Proverbs that the heart, here again in chapter 4 being revealed to us, you know, it's the seat of our fundamental commitments. 
the heart is the throne where the object of our love and trust sits. Um, Augustine's Confessions, he said this, wherever I'm carried, my love is carrying me. Thomas Cramner, famous 16th century theologian, reformer, uh, if you were to summarize his teaching, he would say um, that the mind justifies and the will chases after what your heart has already chosen. And so we want to guard our hearts and the hearts of our children. As I think about many of you at Redeemer, most of our congregation, young parents, small kids, we want to train our children to see the value in the goodness of, of God's love and wisdom and grace. We want, we want our children to be worshipers so that they are candidates for wisdom, um, so that they will recognize that there are, at the end of the day, whatever your heart has chosen, this is, these are the things you're justifying. Um, Dr. James Smith is the professor of philosophy at Calvin College, and he wrote a book called You Are What You Love, and in it, he talks about the heart being like on autopilot. It's just essentially navigating you um, through life until you consciously stop to think about what is leading you through your decision-making process. The heart is like autopilot. Well, Proverbs chapter 4 and verse 23 about guarding the heart, it is an invitation to shut off autopilot. It is an invitation to think about where our love is carrying us. It is this invitation to reflect on what our life orbits around, what gets us up in the morning, what is formulating our identity, what is telling us that our life has meaning, what is telling us that you know if I have these things, I will be fulfilled. Proverbs 4 invites us to hit pause and to take inventory so that we can then move forward uh, with wisdom, having been reflective on these things. This is important because the end of verse 23, if you look at it, it says, the issues of life spring out of the heart. So what is God's goal here? What is God's goal? If there's two paths, one is wise, one is foolish, one is righteous, one is wicked, one is well lit, and one is dark. What is God's plan for the guarded heart if, all, if, if everything is flowing out of it? God's goal is not lifelong management of what flows out of our heart. God's goal is that by grace, we would have a new heart, that over time, new things would flow out of our heart, that over time, we would have new desires in our heart. This is the difference between behavior management, which is still good because it serves our neighbor, and transformation that comes by the Spirit. Because instead of just seeing different things and choosing different things and fighting with, the, 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 well, I see that and I would like to choose that, but I'm going to choose something else. That, that is good behavior management. But transformation and renewal is wanting different things, is desiring different things, is making decisions that are flowing out of not a managed heart, but a new heart. And, by the, and for that, we need the Spirit's work. We need the indwelling power of the Spirit. None of us transform and renew ourselves. This is a work. Um, this is the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts and in our lives. And so, we can manage our emotions and we can manage our behaviors with techniques, and that is, of course, very good and very helpful. But what God is up to is healing. What God wants to do is heal, make new, and so this is God's goal. And so finally, I want to close with this this morning. And it's that as we consider um, the wisdom that requires passionate pursuit, as we consider the wisdom that flows from a guarded heart, I want to leave you with this. Wisdom is a living word. We want to be guided by the word of wisdom. It's a living word. Um, 
what does what does the scripture mean when it talks about God's word in this way? Okay, think about <clears throat> think about it this way. Wisdom is knowledge applied. And Jesus is God's wisdom applied. Wisdom is taking precepts and bringing them down to earth and living them out in your life. Jesus is God come to earth and walking out God's wisdom with a loving and gracious and merciful and just life. Jesus is God's wisdom personified and you and I, by grace, are united to Jesus. I say this because as we think very thoughtfully and practically and pragmatically about how to walk out the decisions that are facing us this next week, wisdom does not begin with moral teachings that we've adopted. I want to encourage you to remember your wisdom begins because united to Christ, that means you're adopted. Mm -hmm. And in John 5, verse 39, Jesus said to the religious leaders who knew the scriptures better than anybody, he said, you study the scriptures thinking that in them you will have eternal life, but they testify of me. What does this mean? When we look at Jesus, when we look at the life of Jesus, we are looking at wisdom personified. So may you continually be made wise as you continue to trust in God's word, as you meditate on God's word, because you are united to Jesus Christ, the living word, that you are empowered by the spirit of Christ who indwells you, who guides you to apply God's word. Let's pray.